Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? Shalom! And welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, as always, my friend, my teacher, my mentor, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Shalom, Caleb. How's it going? Going well. Hey, uh, Purim was last uh, last Sunday. Began on Saturday night into Sunday. How was your Purim? We had a lot of fun. I tried to, during the times where I was reading, I uh, tried to do like an Esther voice like this, <laughs> but, it, but it was hard to maintain. The kids were laughing. I mean, it was very fun, but it's hard to maintain distinct voices for like, you know, Haman and Mordecai. And, I hear you. Uh, and I'm not a professional voice guy, so I know that some people have a real great skill in doing that. But well, I'll tell you, I uh, last last week I had a uh, tooth pulled out, and uh, it was a wisdom tooth. I didn't know I was going to the dentist to get my tooth pulled out, but I've been uh, I've been uh, struggling with that, trying to recover from that. And then also, my my wife and child have been uh, horribly ill, uh-huh. so we uh, we didn't make it to our Purim fest- festivities. But I heard that they were great. So, yeah, what can you do? Well, hey, everyone listening, welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. We're very happy that you're here. If you missed last week, please, please feel free to go into our on-demand section of our website. It's going to be free until April 1st. Go and listen to last week's week's Rob and Caleb show because it was the first part of a two and what is actually probably going to become a three-parter series on One Law Theology. But before we get to uh, our topic, which is One Law Theology, before we get to that today, um, if you want to send us an email, weigh in on the conversation with us, go ahead and do that. Let us know, radio at TorahResource.com. That's radio at TorahResource.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, and you can follow Rob Vanhoff on Twitter. I'm at Caleb Hegg, that's H-E-G-G, and Rob is at, at Rob Vanhoff, and that's uh, V-A... N O F F. I had to think about that for a few seconds. Van Hoff. Um, yeah. So uh, last week, let's do a quick little uh, s- summary of what was going on last week. Last week, we just talked about what one law theology is. We talked about uh, the general premise of one law theology. We also talked about what some of the people uh, who who uh, oppose one law theology but are in the messianic movement what they say one law theology is. Uh, so we looked at a couple of quotes and if you haven't listened to that, I do recommend you go and listen to that. It's not necessary though. You can, uh, you can be a part of this conversation no matter what. So, um, first I want to read a email from one of our listeners. This is from my good friend. I've mentioned Adam, uh, several times he's in Montana. He's a becoming a very good friend of mine. Him and his wife are coming over to stay with me and my wife during Passover. We're looking forward to that. He wrote me an email after he listened to our show last week. He said, so it really seems to me that those ethnic Jewish believers, uh, or the UMJC and others, which hold to a bilateral ecclesiology are putting faith in the idea that ethnicity or family heritage plays some role in the atonement. It almost it's almost as uh, as if they think they are 
quote, in already because they are Jewish by birth and keeping the mitzvot and the completion or seal of their status is belief in Yeshua, the Messiah. It makes secondary the atonement, which I believe should be primary. I agree with that. However, at the same time, I know that those in the UMJC and those that uh, hold to a bilateral ecclesiology would reject that outright. Uh, I, I think that they that people who hold to a bilateral ecclesiology would say absolutely not. We don't believe that. Uh, but but it is an interesting point. It's, it does seem like there's some kind of uh, we're better than you ethnicity uh, card that's being played amongst some of the messianics. We're over here in this camp. If you're Gentile, go back to the Christian church. We don't need you. We don't want you kind of a mentality. Rob, what are your well, thoughts on that, that? Well, yeah, and the, I think the side to that is that uh, non-Jewish believers in Yeshua who are drawn to Torah need to tread carefully um, because... Explain that. The, the assumption is, and this goes back to one of the pioneer Messianic Jewish thinkers, uh, uh, is it Lichtenstein? I'm trying to remember. Oh, so you're, who, sa- you're saying that from that viewpoint... That his, view, his view was that Gentile desire to keep the Torah was wrong. That, mm. that basically was not of the Holy Spirit. Well, and that's what the Orthodox believe. And the, so the, the Orthodox is, today. Yeah, and, and so a Gentile or a non-Jew who is drawn to, to walk in the ways of Torah doesn't have any business um, interpreting, the, reading the scriptures, re, re, reading someone else's mail, basically, mm. reading the Torah, that, which is for Jews only, and then applying it to their life and, and into the lives of their communities, that they have no business doing that. Uh, and so there's one of the things you'll hear is like, oh, they don't even have any Jews in their congregation. You know, well, and just ju- just like Piles, you know, now Piles, uh, James Piles, we we read a quote from him last week, and uh, he he mentions in there that most of the time, uh, one law messianic groups are led by by Gentiles. Now, I don't believe that uh, James Piles is actually Jewish. I, I think that his wife is. I now I could be wrong about that, but I think. How it plays out is that his wife is Jewish, he's not, and I believe he attends a Christian church. Uh, he's, he's, he writes just a ton of material on his blog. Anyway, the point is, is that, uh, he even brings that up, that most of the, you know, and I don't even know why that would be an issue. Who cares if most of the, the Messian, you know, if the Messianic synagogues are over, are, are overrun and therefore led by Gentiles, what does that matter? Who cares? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, not the point. I guess my point there was just that even, you know, we, we see a Christian brother, James Piles, talking, you know, using that same kind of language there of, well, almost as if, as if it's a bad thing. Oh, well, the Gentile, you know, the one law is, you know, their leaders are, are Gentiles. Another, another aspect of the angle uh, taken by the groups like the UMJC, you'll see sometimes is uh, the notion of assimilation or fear of assimilation. In other words, the fear that there's this, quote, Jewish identity that's going to be lost mm. in the world. And so, therefore, Jewish communities are obligated to take it upon themselves to make sure that they only uh, marry within uh, yeah. within uh, ethnicity. So, so, in other words, a Jewish uh, young man should... should uh, you know, Mar- married. Should, uh, yeah, capital should. Yeah, yeah. marry, well, and, uh, and and they they take or, that or use conversion. In other words, so if a if a, a Jewish person is interested in marrying a non-Jewish person, that that non-Jewish person is encouraged to convert. And, and they, there's exa- a lot of examples of that within what we call Messianic Judaism. They take and, that. From, they take that from the command that a, that a priest or a, or a Levite should should uh, stay within the clan. Am I correct on that? Yeah, well, and yeah, that's a good point, Caleb, because it turns out that a lot of the things that are kind of co-opted and institutionalized in a unique way among the rabbis 
uh, are from taking things that apply to priests and applying it to your average Joe uh, rabbis in, or Jews in general. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Well, hey, I want to. I want to actually. You know, uh, I'm. I'm. I, I don't know if people can tell. But I'm jonesing to go here. I and I, I don't want to say that you know I I'm yeah I'm just eager to get to this because uh, after our show last week somebody sent me and when I say someone it's actually our programmer at our programming desk Gary Springer Gary Springer sent me over some audio and uh, Rob has not <laughs> Rob has not heard this yet and the reason that this show is going to become a three parter is because we're going to insert this show right here because it is crucial. To this conversation about one law theology. So what you're saying is this week's show uh, is next week, and this week is a yes, it's something insert. else. I'm making, <laughs> okay, I'm, cool. I'm inserting here, and the reason why is because you know when we had uh, Dr. Michael Brown on, he's a, a wonderful believer in the Lord. He's done a lot for for Christianity. And for uh, bringing the Messiah to, uh, you know, not only Gentiles, but to Jewish people as well. Um, he is reviled by the anti-missionaries or the reverse missionaries because of his work that he does. Um, he's, he's a great believer. I respect him a lot for a lot of the things he does. And when we brought him on our show to talk about Hebrew, uh, there was quite the kickback from Messianics. Uh, basically the argument was, how dare you bring someone onto your show who doesn't believe that the Torah is an act? Uh, you know, how dare you, uh, this, this man doesn't believe Torah is an act. So how can we, uh, take his word on Hebrew? Well, the reason we can take his word on Hebrew is, and the Hebrew language is because he has his PhD in, in the Hebrew language. He has his PhD in near Eastern languages and literature, uh, from NYU, which is quite a credential in my mind. So that's how we can listen to him on things about Hebrew. However, we disagree with him on theology. And that's what I said to everyone who brought up this argument. And lo and behold, Dr. Brown has been talking about one law theology on his radio show in the line of fire. Now, granted, he did not bring this topic up. A caller called in and asked Dr. Brown about one law theology. And so I have actually taken the clip from his show in the line of fire, which can be found on his website. I believe it's in the line of fire.com. Uh, now I want to preface this whole conversation with, I respect Dr. Brown. I think he's a brother in the Lord. I, uh, you know, I would love to have him back on our show sometime because I do find him to have a wealth of knowledge in certain areas. But when it comes to one law theology, we definitely disagree. And we're going to take what he said head on today. We're going to go through this. It, I think it's about four minutes and 10 seconds altogether is this audio clip. Well, I've chopped it up uh, so that we can play a little bit here, a little bit there, and then we can respond to it. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, and if by chance, Dr. Brown is listening to this, uh, Dr. Brown, with all due respect, you have my, uh, my Skype number, you have my uh, email address, feel free. We would love to talk to you about this. If that's something that you would like to do. One of the reasons I want to talk about this issue and, uh, want to bring Dr. Brown's audio into this is because I want to show our listeners what a Christian, uh, teacher and someone who's respected in the Christian community has to say about one law. So it's not just the messianics that we're talking to and uh, the, the messianics that disagree with us. We're not just talking to them about uh, and against them when it comes to one law theology, but it's also a, uh, a way to look at the wider Christian 
uh, uh, church as a whole and how they view uh, one law theology. So uh, without further ado, Rob, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. I, I got a pencil and paper here, too, because I don't know what I'm in for. <laughs> yeah, once again, Rob has not heard any of this video or any of this uh, audio clip. Uh, so we're going to start by hearing uh, the caller's name is Renee. And Renee calls in, and I will just let you hear her uh, question. And then before uh, Dr. Brown answers, I'll give you, Rob, a couple of seconds to, uh, to talk about uh, her question in general. Okay, here we go. From the study that I have studied the last several years, um, the concept of when someone would join themselves to an Israelite, God would give the instruction that the sojourner or those that would journey along would have one law. And if that was the concept of the Old Testament, why is there such a distinction? Well, if the identifier of the Israelite today versus the Gentile of today, if it's one God with one Messiah and one body, Okay, so that's Renee's question. Wow. I and, wish you'd call in our show. <laughs> I, I was thinking the same thing. You know, honestly, uh, as, I was, as I was listening to these, these clips, I thought, man, I really hope Renee is listening to our show. I doubt she is because, you know, Conan O'Brien used to joke that there was like five people out there watching. Well, that's kind of how I feel about our show. You know, we thank the five people that are listening to our show right now, but uh, I really don't think that uh, – I don't think that we have a huge audience – but, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe the Lord has directed uh, Renee to listen to this show today. So, Renee, if you're out there listening to us, I hope you enjoy this. Okay, so that was Renee's question to Dr. Brown. You do, uh, any response to that besides it was a great question? I think it was a great question. I think – oh, no, I, I look forward to – so what, how did he feel this? <laughs> oh, okay. For, for those of our, our listeners who, are, who hold to one-law theology, get ready. Because this one gets fun. For those who do not hold to one law theology, you might actually appreciate Dr. Brown's response. I, however, did not. Here's his the beginning of his response. Okay, here we go. Uh, well, he's, he's not. We all follow the law of the Messiah today. We're all part of the New Covenant. Remember, in Old Testament times, to be part of the people of God would have meant joining yourself to the nation of Israel. And if you wanted full status... Uh, it okay. would actually mean conversion uh, to becoming a, a, a Jewish person and a full-fledged Israelite. This would have been the case in Jesus' day. If you were a Gentile, you could, you could worship at the synagogue, you could follow certain basic moral laws, but you were not considered a Jew or an Israelite. If, however, you converted and became a Jew, then you would have full status and you could even pray the prayers, God of our fathers, as if these were now your fathers. Okay, so that's Dr. Brown's beginning of his response. First of all, let me let me just say, I understand what he's saying in terms of there was this conversion process, but that's not found in the Bible. It's a man. It was a man-made thing, right? And it's not uniform. We don't have a top-down capital J Judaism that's that mandates these things and oversees. That's a this. great point. That, yeah, that, and that's that, and that's one of the things that scholars fail to see is the diversity. I mean, so have, so you could convert to the Qumran sector, you convert yeah, convert to the exactly. Sadducees or the Pharisees, but each one of them said that you weren't really. It's just like the day the 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 Judaisms today say you know Orthodox a lot of Orthodox Judaisms would say if you uh, if you convert in a Reform synagogue, you're you're not in, you're not considered Jewish still. And so it was still the same back then. Am I right, Rob? 
Yeah, so the, the, what we're talking about is an ideology. Dr. Brown's describing an ideology of, oh, that someone could convert to Judaism in Yeshua's day. And that's it's just way oversimplified picture. It's the, because the, the facts on the ground, there's so much diversity, so much contention. You have people um, that are getting circumcised for all sorts of different reasons. Well, and beyond uh, that, well, hang on, let's, let's just go to the Bible here for a few seconds. You know, where in the Bible does it say that to be a member of the covenant, uh, even the even the Sinai covenant, let's talk about the Sinai covenant right now, uh, to be a member of the Sinai covenant, you have to convert to Judaism. You're not yeah, in unless you convert. Where yeah, in the Bible does it say that? Yeah. You know, to, and, and honestly, Dr. Brown knows better than that. I mean, let's give him credit. Dr. Brown knows better than that. Uh, you know, he would say, well, there's not, I, I can only assume what he would say. I don't want to put words in Dr. Brown's mouth. You know, I hate it when people do that to me. So I'm, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I do think that Dr. Brown would admit, no, there, that there is no conversion process in the Bible. Um, right. And, and this idea of full status versus not full status and things like that. Those are all, uh, that's the same problem we have with, with this, that sectarianism. I and mean, you have different groups claiming to be the true thing and the other groups are illegitimate and, um, it's just is not a helpful framework from my perspective. What, one thing that Dr. Brown did mention that I was glad to hear is that he says we all follow the law of the Messiah or the Torah of Messiah. Yeah, but he uh, brings now, of it. Of course. Now, how do we define that? That's where we would uh, we might see some diversity too between his take on that and what we call you know one law theology. Well, he brings up the law of the Messiah. Now, what is the law of the Messiah as oppo- that opposes the law of God? Now, he's going to say old law, I would think. I would think that he would say old law, but I don't see that. You know, what's right. in my mind, the law of the Messiah is the law of God. It's the Torah. That's the law of the Messiah. Another and, institution that is just assumed is, like he says, in the Old Testament. Now, I don't have any problem at all with people saying Old Testament, but if we keep using that word. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> we're, what we're doing is we're, we're just re- uh, we're adding support to to a uh, something that ultimately blurs our vision, and and you know, so we're uh, reifying the, uh, Christian institution uh, by labeling these books of the Bible Old Testament, these books of the Bible New Testament, and um, I, I think so. Throwing things at the caller, uh, Renee, such as uh, conversion, full status, um, Old Testament. Um, I I would like more detail. Personally. Well, and not only that, but is what does he mean? Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're saying is is basically what does he mean by Old Testament? You know, is he saying that the Old Testament is the Old Covenant? And you know, anyone who has uh, who's who's uh, watched my father's videos, uh, the New Covenant, God's Promise Revealed. I think, yeah, uh, knows that that, you know, you have to define terms. It doesn't work like that. And where, and, uh, many people don't realize that the word old covenant is only used one time in the apostolic scriptures or what would be, what be, would be called the new Testament by Christians, uh, by our Christian brothers and sisters. Um, so the idea of old covenant, what do you mean by old covenant? Uh, I think there's some, some major problems with that. You want to move on? Uh, yeah, let's keep going. Okay, so so uh, that wasn't the end of his, by any means, was not the end of, of what he says about this. Let's, let's move on. And now with the coming of the gospel, uh, there's no distinction made between Jew and Gentile in terms of salvation. Acts the f- okay, hang on just a second. I want to stop right there. So he says, now with the coming of the gospel, there's no distinction between 
Jew and Gentile. At, for salvation. For salvation. Was there ever? There, right. Implied in his implied in, in that statement, the way I hear it, is that the gospel um, changed, <laughs> yeah. changed the status of Gentiles. Yeah. Well, what about Ruth? Right, right, yeah. You know, I, I don't see her going through some conversion process. Now, I know the rabbis would sh- say she did, but, I mean, in, in God's eye, what about Abraham? Abraham wasn't Jewish, but he believed God and it was reckoned to him as, as, as righteousness. And then, and, and once he believed, then he circumcised himself, right? Well, that's right. So even if it was a conversion process, he was found righteous in God's eyes before he quote unquote converted, which I don't believe he did. I don't believe it was a conversion process. I believe he took upon himself the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which was the, the prophecy of the Messiah. Uh, we can get into circum. Actually, we should do a whole show on circumcision. That um, would be several shows, probably. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But uh, we should definitely <laughs> do that because um, I have my I have my very distinct theory of of why God commanded such a odd act. Anyway, not the point. Uh, the point is, is that even before the coming of the Messiah, it doesn't seem like there was any kind of uh, distinction between Jew and Gentile when it came to salvation. Let's keep going with Doctor Brown's point. And now with the coming of the gospel, uh, there's no distinction made between Jew and Gentile in terms of salvation. Acts, the 15th chapter, the question came up, did Jews need, excuse me, did Gentiles need to become Jews and follow the Torah in order to be saved? And the answer was no. We're all saved by grace, and this was never a yoke that God intended to put on the Gentile world. And so when they had the opportunity to make it mandatory, they didn't. Paul fought it tooth and nail when the Galatians were told, unless you were circumcised and obey the law of Moses, you're not saved. He fought that tooth and nail and told the Galatians not to lose the freedom that they had in the Messiah. Okay, so Dr. Brown, is, in my opinion, is, is mixing uh, several different points here. First of all, I agree with him that, that Paul did, uh, did fight tooth and nail against the idea that you have to be circumcised to be saved. I believe that that was the whole debate over ethnicity. You don't have to convert, and this goes back to what he said in the beginning. You don't have, what Dr. Brown said in the beginning, you don't have to convert to Judaism uh, and uh, to, you know, to have faith and to, and to be, be righteous before the Almighty. In fact, I, I think that the idea of conversion as a whole is, is, is spoken out against by the apostolic scriptures and is not found in the Tanakh. So that's one issue right there. Agreed. I agree with Dr. Brown that Galatians is basically a letter uh, against uh, this, you know, conversion being any kind of salvation tool. It's, it's not. Uh, what are your thoughts on that point, Rob? Oh, I'm, I'm right along. I, I would, I like to emphasize that when we talk about conversion with real communities, like for Paul and Galatia, for example, we're dealing about, we're dealing with these small networks of, of, uh, authoritative teachers, right? Or teachers and synagogue communities that, have the, an appeal of authority to them. Mm. It, we're not talking about conversion to capital J Judaism official. You know, I mean, there's no, uh, we just don't have a single institution. We have all these different groups. And so the groups that Paul's talking about in Galatians uh, are probably loosely affiliated in some sort of network through communities that are in the land of Israel as well. Mm. Uh, but but it's still, it's not like this uniform uh, religion called Judaism that you 
it can, you know, go to any one of our sites and convert and become one of us. <laughs> you know, it's, we, we just, it's just, they didn't have that kind of, uh, uh, institutionalization well, at that point. The other thing that he brings up is Acts 15. Now, this seems that, you know, I don't know why Christians and even uh, Messianics who are against one-law theology, they think that this is the smoking gun. They think that, that uh, Acts 15 is like, oh, man, bring up Acts 15. It, it totally stops them in their tracks. I don't know why uh, people think that. It doesn't make any sense to me because in, in okay now let's let's look at, at Acts fifteen for a few seconds. What he's talking about is the Jerusalem Council, where uh, they say should the Gentiles be keeping any of the law? Blah. I'm paraphrasing, of course, and they say yeah, we'll give them we'll give them four different things that they need to keep. My father's written a, an extensive article on this. You can find it on the Torah Resource website. Um, th- I think that the smoking gun in this whole thing is. Well, first of all, Dr. Brown said that uh, that no, the the Gentiles uh, can't find righteousness through through keeping the Torah. Granted, nobody can. The Jews can't. The Gentiles can't. Nobody can. Uh, so, the, and I don't think that that's being that's not what's being asked in in uh, the Jerusalem Council. Do you think I'm right on that? Well, I uh, think that in the there's two different parts to Acts 15. There's verse yeah. one, and then there's verse five and following. Verse 1 is what's happening up in Antioch, where people were saying, unless you, in my reading, it's unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you, you cannot be saved. And, mm. and what they meant by that was eighth-day circumcision. Unless, you were alre- unless you're already circumcised, unless you're already in because you're in. In uh, other words, and, because you're Jewish. Well, unless you're, you're circumcised on the eighth day. Remember, okay. there was a whole polemic in the Second Temple period uh, with the Book of Jubilees, etc., where there were, uh, in the Maccabean kings— and the Hasmonean dynasty, basically, when they're expanding, they're mass circumcisions of, of other ethnic groups and calling them Jews now and to expand the territory. And so all these people, the males, are being circumcised on a mass, uh, forcedly, so forcedly, uh, on a mass scale. And now they're called Judean. Um, and so they have the mark of circumcision, and they're, they're politically considered Judean now. But it has nothing to do with the faith of Abraham on one uh, side of it. Um, and so you have a rise, in my view, that this is the best way to understand the book, part of the what Jubilees is all about, is saying, no, unless you're circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, we have all these males claiming to be Judeans, but uh, the, the, the ones who are coming from the covenant side are resentful of all these mass people now be calling, calling Judeans and bearing the mark of circumcision when they really have no... Uh, sense of piety toward the God of Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, can you tell that Rob Van Hoff has written on this subject before? If you want to uh, hear more of why Rob is uh, pounding the pulpit on this, it's because he has uh, done extensive work on this exact subject. You can find uh, more of, of this exact topic from Rob Van Hoff in our video series, Studies in Early Judaisms, which can be found on the Torah Resource uh, website in our store. Uh, let's move on to uh, Acts 15, uh, 5 and following, though, Rob. We're talking- okay, so, on, and then the language, this is where it's helpful to have some some competency with the Greek language. The language uh, Acts 15, 5 and following is very different. They're asking about, insta- should we circumcise people? In other words... I.e. convert? Sh- yeah, well, should we set up... Uh, uh, a little circumcision stations everywhere, basically, and say tell people that they need to <laughs> to go through, you know, enter here, aye, aye, aye. you know, and and all of a sudden set up this authority now where we are the circumcisers, 
making sure that you know, checking the border for the for the community of believers <laughs> in Yeshua, and and that's uh, the, you got right. the answer is no, no. That's not got, what we do. You got checkpoints, okay, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like TSA. Yeah, you know, they, they so didn't step have behind the, the uh, curtain. <laughs> they, they didn't have the technology of the uh, laser beam or the X ray, <laughs> so they had to. I don't know. Okay, but, so let, let's hang on just a sec before you go on, Rob, because I I I, I you're on the right track. I, I want to keep going on this line of track, but but let's actually read i want to read acts 15 uh 19 through well we'll start in 18 uh, uh actually yeah 19 through 21 here i'm going to read it for you therefore and this is from the nasb version uh some people might not like that version whatever for lack of anyway therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to god from among the gentiles but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood for moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogue every sabbath okay rob exegete that for me well, I uh, just see that as um, a way, and I follow basically the the picture your dad has done a good job, Tim Haig, on unpacking this. That these are based on scripture, but they're they're specific stringencies that will be recognized in probably uh, the local Jewish synagogues that uh, are are good faith indicators to pious Jews. That the Gentiles are are staying wide and clear from idolatrous practices, and those are things that would get them kicked out of the synagogue. Am I correct? Yeah. In other words, it's a good faith effort to go. And so, look, you know, I, I'm not. I don't have any affiliation with any local temples or uh, worship of the emperor or any kind of strange, you know. So the que- so, animals so, so the, blood. there's two there's two main things that I'm seeing here and I'm going to just put them out there. First of all, a it seems like the Jerusalem Council expects the Gentiles to be in this in the synagogue. If the if the Torah has been done away with and and the Gentiles are supposed to be over here in the Christian church, then why in the world is the Jerusalem Council trying to get give them laws to bring them into the synagogue? Number two is that uh, it seems like these are just the beginning. He doesn't say that the law of Moses is done away with, and therefore they only have to keep four things. No, he says in verse twenty one, and this is the one that that uh, you know people who take the view that the uh, Gentiles only have to keep these four laws. Uh, they gloss over verse 21. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Therefore, it seems to me that they're saying, look, the Gentiles are going to be in the synagogue every Sabbath. They'll hear the law read, and then they'll start to conform to it. Right. They'll probably be. And and also, you know, we didn't start, but uh, if you go back a few verses Mm. with 15, uh, Yaakov or James actually quotes the book of Amos, yeah. And he says, uh, after this I will return. I just pulled open the King James here. After this I will return uh, and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build again the ruins thereof and will set it up so that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. So in other words, that this reason that this tabernacle is being rebuilt is so that these Gentiles will come and they will be able to hear the Torah, mm. right? I mean, because it caps back back to verse twenty one with the Moses. Um, and why would they need to preached. hear the Why would they need to hear the Torah if they're not supposed to keep it? Just so they know what the Jews are supposed to do. 
All right. Hey, we've been uh, talking about one-law theology. We're going to get back to some of Dr. Brown's audio clips uh, from In the Line of Fire and his view of one-law theology. We're going to do that right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. Hey, welcome back. We are talking about one law theology. We've been talking about what Dr. Brown, Michael Brown, has said about one law theology and uh, responding to some of what he said. But before that, let's do our tech minute. Last week, I talked about version and the ability to listen to the Bible. Although version is great for several functions, one of the things it lacks is Hebrew and Greek texts. Accordance Bible Software makes the best Bible app for a smartphone. However, you can only read the first five chapters of Genesis in the Hebrew for free. And have access to more than this, you must own Accordance. For those that want to be able to view a Hebrew or Greek text in parallel columns with the English, the Blue Letter Bible app is a must. This app can be found in the App Store and is called and produced by Blue Letter Bible. This app has some good functions such as personal notes, in-app and web searchability, daily reading schedules, and an automatic scroll feature. Any two texts can be put side by side for comparison, making this a great app for Hebrew and Greek readers. While this app does come with a Hebrew text, abbreviated WLC, already installed, you have to download a Greek text. This can be done by clicking on the book icon in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. When the text wheel appears, click on the Manage Bibles button towards the bottom of the screen. Find a Greek text to download. There are several to choose from and press the Download button. While I like this app for more of a Bible reading app, it lacks commentaries and notes. The Net Bible is a version provided on this app, but it does not have the Net Notes, and this can be frustrating. While I find this app great for reading the Word or for a quick reference lookup, it is not great for study. The Blue Letter Bible app is totally free and takes 39 megabytes. I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars for the Blue Letter Bible app. That's right. 3.5 stars. So... If you don't have it already, you should get it. It is an excellent one. And honestly, I'm going to, a lot of people might be saying he's going over another Bible app. Well, I'm actually going to go over another one and possibly another one after that um, in the following weeks. I have so many Bible apps on my phone and uh, I, I, I use every single one of them. I use all of them. So. There you go. If you, that's the thing, the beauty about knowing your tools and knowing how to use your tools and knowing what kind of question you're asking at the time and what tool to use for it. That's right. However, I will say this. Uh, if I did, it, it, I, I would use all of them a lot more if I didn't have accordance. I have accordance on my, on my phone. And if you have accordance Bible software, get the accordance app. It is an amazing app and you can download any part of accordance that you want onto it. Anyway, that's a whole different story. Let's get back to one law theology. Okay. We're talking about Dr. Brown, his comments that were made on the 20th of February on his show in the line of fire in response to a caller named Renee. Now, we've already gone through some of these clips. We're going to go through some more of them. So we just got done talking about, let's see here, which one was it? Oh, he... Uh, uh, the, he d- conflated Acts 15 yes, with yes. Galatians. Yes, that's right, uh, which I believe are two totally separate uh, discussions that are going on in those, uh, in, the, in those passages. Okay, let's go on to his next audio clip. You ready for this, Rob? Sure. All right, here we go. Uh, if you were to consistently live this out, Renee, it would mean 
that you're celebrating every new moon. Okay, hang on just a sec. So what's the problem with that? Consistent. He's he's gonna he's gonna go through a bunch of different things. Like uh, this is what you have to do. This you have to do this. You yeah, have to do this. yeah. This is the beginning of 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 you know some of the things that he brings up. But the, the first one he brings up is celebrating the new moon. I, I, what's wrong with that? And what is the celebration of the new moon? Granted, back in the in the uh, first century, it seems like they had some debate over whether or not you should fast. Um, different things go on. Really, the only things that are prescribed in the Torah are um, blowing the shofar or the trumpet and uh, just recognizing that it's a new, a new month, right? Yeah. I mean, you're thinking, you're thinking biblically. It's not like someone's, it, it's not like, uh, oh, wow, he's going to celebrate the new moon. <laughs> I mean, not, now, I, I don't want people to think I, that I'm being, that we're being, uh, flip it towards uh, Dr. Brown. You know, I just, uh, that to me, and, you know, and granted, Dr. Brown was put on the spot uh, to answer this question. So it's not like, it's not like he had, uh, you know, an hour to prepare like I did, uh, in, you know, and, and listen to these clips or anything, you know, he, he, he was shooting from the hip. Um, but in my mind, uh, the idea that all of a sudden, if you're going to keep the tour, you have to start uh, celebrating the new moon. Who cares? That's great. That's what God told us to do. Why wouldn't we want to do it? You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay, let's move on because that wasn't a, you know, that that one, we might disagree on that with Dr. Brown, but it, he, he goes into some interesting places. Okay, let's listen to the next one. Here we go. It would mean that as, as a woman, you'd have to live by certain purity laws and, and separation, physical separation uh, from your husband during certain times of the month. Okay, hang on just a sec. Mm, no, it wouldn't. Let's be realistic. And honestly, it surprises me that since Dr. Brown comes from a Jewish background, it surprises me that he would, you know, that he would say that. Um, granted, the Orthodox Jewish communities of today, and, and, and uh, Rob can speak to this a lot better than me. Rob just got finished with his class on modern Judaism, which he taught last quarter. He's going to reteach it again. I'm taking it this coming quarter. I'm very excited for it. Heavy reading, I understand, but uh, you can you can talk to this a little bit better, Rob. Uh, you know what do the conservative don't keep uh, the purity laws like the Orthodox do, and why not? What's the? I mean, should we be? Should I be putting my wife out in a red tent in the backyard every time she's uh, she's having that time of the month? No, I don't believe so. <laughs> I think that what what there are things. I mean, here's an underlying point: is you know we don't have. There's no temple system. We don't have, even have a, a pure space at all right now. No, every, everything's uh, and, and impure. Corpse defilement is is really what is governing all the laws of Holocaust purity right now. Is that there's, uh, you know, the, I hear stories of of Kohanim, you know, Levitical priests who, you know, who can trace their genealogy, you know, living in the land, and they, I guess, they raise them up and they don't ever let them touch the ground. Um, because because the land is is impure and there's no ashes of the red heifer. Even if we have the ashes of the red heifer, there's no we we can't. There's just part of the of the core institution of the worship with the Mishkan that that Adonai has just pulled away. God has pulled that it's well, just let, taken. Let, let's let's even go beyond that. When so we, it relativizes what I'm I'm just saying. It relativizes all this idea of of purity 
versus impurity. Well, beyond uh, beyond that, when you're born, when a woman has a child, she's impure for how many days? Thirty days? Well, it depends if it's a male or a female. But the child's uh, the child is impure as well. And then what happens? They have to have a mikveh, and they have to go. Don't they have to go to the temple? Yeah, yeah, and there's a, a sacrifice. And... Well, they can't go to the temple. They can't make a sacrifice. So technically speaking, just being born, you're uh, you're you're in a state of impurity. And not only that, but I think that there, you know, we need to clear up just a few things. It's not a sin to be in a state of impurity. That's it's not it's not a sin. And that's, ex- that's exactly right. It just means you would not be able to go into. Into the, the sacred temple. space of yeah. the holy space of the priests and so, uh, service. So the idea that that uh, the people who who lived far away from the temple were constantly worrying about uh, pu- purity issues, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Now, granted, some were, but basically, the only time that you had to become ritually pure was when you were going into the temple, and there was ways to become ritually pure. So it seems to me that the people who came to the to the temple uh, once every you know three times each year and made the trek up to Israel for that, it wasn't like they were living their lives uh, trying to to make sure that everything was pure all the time. No, they would go and they would purify themselves. You know, they would uh, go through the the steps to become pure before they went into the temple on the festival during the festival times. So uh, even in the first century, when there was a temple, it doesn't seem like uh, these these laws were were uh, held by everyone in the whole. You know, anyone who was Jewish in the world. It doesn't seem like that's what was going on. Beyond that, his his statement that. Uh, you know, you physical have, separation, physical separation. That's also not true that uh, now granted in the Torah, there is a, I, I want to be a little bit cur- careful because I'm not sure if there's uh, you know, what age of ears are listening to us right now, but it does seem that a, a husband and a wife were not uh, to engage in certain acts uh, during that time of the month. Uh, no. Okay. Granted that's, uh, is that really a problem though? I don't think that Dr. Brown would think it is. Um, but once again, the idea of having to seclude yourself if you're going to start keeping a Torah lifestyle uh, is just simply not true. We don't have a temple. We don't have a priesthood. That's something that we can't do anyway. Okay, let's move on. It, it would mean if your husband had a brother and this brother uh, di- was married but died uh, without having children, then your husband would be obligated or expected to marry also uh, the sisters, so there'd be a polygamous uh, uh, setting there, so that there could be uh, there could be children born in his name. Okay, hang on, just a sec. Now, I, now okay, that's not enforced. That, that that there was an option for that. Wait, hang on, just a sec. There's no. there, there's a bigger issue here, and I and honestly, I don't think that that Doctor Brown thought that through. The reason why is because as an evangelical. Is Dr. Brown really suggesting that before the Messiah came and died on the cross, God instituted a mandatory polygamist relationship? Is that yeah, what? That's great. Yeah, that's that's is, is yeah, that that's what, a good point. You know, yeah, that's, that, that's definitely uh, not what the intent is. Well, and not only that, I think that if if asked, Dr. Now maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Dr. Brown does think that, but I think that if if pushed on this. Or if asked, even, uh, do you think that God was was uh, making it mandatory uh, to be in a polygamous relationship? You know, okay. So then, what happens if if uh, you know before the Messiah died, a uh, a man dies, his brother is married to someone, uh, but the wife is still alive? He, according to this line of thought, would be ma- would be it would be mandatory that he marries uh, the dead brother's wife. 
and and now he's in a polygamous relationship. Okay, uh, which apparently is now mandatory through the Torah. And then all of a sudden, the Messiah dies on the cross. Is he supposed to divorce one wife? Is he supposed to stay in a polygamous relationship now? Now that this law has been done away with, how does that work? It, this is absolutely ridiculous to me. Um, and and I honestly, to give Dr. Brown the benefit of the doubt, I think it just wasn't really thought through what he was saying because I just don't think that that's what, you know, I don't think that that's what Dr. Brown really believes. I could be wrong on that. I don't know. Um, maybe if Dr. Brown hears us, he wants to clarify that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Rob? Well, there's there's two different angles. When we talk about the uh, Yevamot, which is the, the law of liberate marriage, the only example we have that we have in Scripture is Ruth, of course, Boaz and Ruth, where Boaz knows the, the law, and so he goes to the nearer kinsman and says, okay, um, this is this legal situation. Our, our, we have a legal conundrum here. Um, Ruth's husband died. She has no offspring. Um, and you are the closest kinsman. You have the right to uh, take her as a wife. And he he declines. Mm. He says, no, I have my own estate to care about. And so it doesn't go into detail. I don't remember for sure. I don't know if it mentions that he has a wife or whatever, but he says, I, I, uh, I, I can't do this. So then it passes on, and then Boaz has the legal means uh, then. And Boaz is not already married either, you know. Um, and so they have, at least to my knowledge, I don't think Boaz was a, a polygamist. And then, of course, we have the the lineage of Messiah, you know, through Boaz and Ruth. Mm. Uh, we have King David, uh, you know, and this is all in Matthew chapter 1. So that there was uh, a way in the Torah that was uh, mapped out, that a legal situation that would be resolved ultimately in a very real relationship between Boaz and Ruth that would ultimately then uh, be the lineage for Messiah Yeshua. Um and so I, I think that's important. I, I agree that uh, it's not polygamy that is, uh, it's not mandatory. In other words, Boaz didn't say, okay, well, I don't care what your situation, you need to take Ruth now into your house. And, well, and there's, you know, that wasn't it. The idea was mercy. The, the idea is you have a, a woman whose husband died, and she's now vulnerable economically and probably going to be at risk in the ancient world in terms of, you know, marginal to the to the society as a whole who's going to take care of her you know without offspring mm. so this was a this was a, a legal means by which uh, a widow in that vulnerable uh, economic and social situation could uh, have means that there would be a recourse a way for her to stay connected uh, and to raise up uh, children an opportunity or an avenue to raise up children in the name of her deceased uh, Israelite husband's mm-hmm, name. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a really an act of mercy. I mean, if, if you were to compare that with other ancient Near Eastern uh, situations, you know, where women were were not given that kind of uh, love and respect and care. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but to take that and then to apply it here is uh, yeah, it, it's a little bit. Uh, well, and not only that, but I, I'm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I need to look at the passage again. But doesn't I mean to even have this whole thing go down? Isn't there? Doesn't aren't there priests involved? Well, yeah. Um, well, I don't remember the, we'll, all we'll, the details. We'll but, have but to, basically we'll, it is a public 
situation. I don't know if there was priests, but there were judges in the, the city okay. gate, you know, that okay. they go before. All right, let's let's keep going. I, you know, if if Doctor Brown really does believe that uh, that that is, you know, that that God was sanctioning and commanding and forcing uh, polygamous relationships before the time of the death of the Messiah, um, well, then we can, you know, I'm I'm willing to debate that. Uh, I I I just don't see that that going on. Anyway, okay, let's go on. His next comment. It would mean that we'd be stoning adulterers and burning witches, etc. So, ah, uh, yes, the stoning and burning of witches. Um, <laughs> you know, honestly, this is one that people bring up all the time. Anytime that I get into a debate with uh, a, a brother or sister uh, who is more on the Christian side of things about whether or not Torah is an act today. This is inevitably what's going to come up. Oh, well, do you think that we should be stoning homosexuals today? You know, that's the that's the one I get. Well, um, first of all, I have no I, I'm not ashamed to say that I uh, since I do believe that the Torah is an act, I I reject the idea of, of homosexual marriage and uh, a homosexual lifestyle. However, uh, you know, that goes on in in the Northwest quite a bit. Uh, the Northwest is quite tolerant towards homosexuality. Um, but the point is, is that once again, how would that, how would that all go about? First of all, we're not in the land. Second of all, there's no temple and there's no priest. And so for me to, for me to take part in the stoning of someone who is a homosexual or to burn a witch, uh, then what would have to happen? We would have to take that person before either the priests or the judges, uh, and there would have to be under a Torah abiding um, government, and we would have to take them, and there would have to be a, a trial essentially. And then another angle on this, too, Gail, if I might say, is that is I, I would probably assume that Doctor Brown knows that even in the most ultra orthodox communities, they're not burning witches. Well, I mean, this no, has nothing course. to do with Messiah Yeshua. This has to do with this idea of uh, applying the Torah of Moses. Well, you know, e- even the most rigid Orthodox Jews are not uh, stoning adulteresses or, or burning witches. But the question, I, I suppose the question would be posed, uh, should they be? And the answer is, is that since the government does not conform to God's law, since there is no Torah abiding government, that we cannot ha- uh, enact these things. Uh, I am not a, I, as someone who is not a priest or a judge, don't have the ability to condemn someone uh, for those for those sins anyway. Uh, beyond that, the government that we live in, and even the Israeli government today, does not uh, give the authority to the judges to hand down uh, those kind of judgments for specific things. Uh, for those specific things. Now, the question might be posed. What about when the Messiah comes back? I believe that when the Messiah comes back, the law will go forth from Israel, from Jerusalem. And what does that mean? I believe that Yeshua will will rule the world with a rod of iron, and he'll do so according to his Torah. So in that time, do I believe that these laws will be enacted? That's what it sure seems like to me. And it sure seems like uh, no one's really going to question that because he's going to be ruling from Jerusalem. So uh, until that time comes, we don't have the ability nor the right to enact stoning of, of, these, of these things. We live in a government, and we have to uh, respect that government. And Yeshua did in his time too, didn't he? Yeshua uh, lived— Yeshua didn't stone an adulteress. No, but my point is, is that he lived in a—he lived under a government. He lived under a Roman government that was not a Torah-centered government. 
right? And it sure seems like he uh, abided by those laws. And so did the Jewish people. They had to go to Pilate to try to to crucify the Messiah. Why did they do that? If they were just uh, willy-nilly about... Yeah, they didn't have the the ability to enact capital punishment. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it it, it sure seems like that's not a a very good argument. Okay, let's let's move on. And uh, yeah, okay, we're going to move on here. Obviously, we're not saying people have to live by Old Testament law today, we're saying that there is a new law in the Messiah, and this is what unites us. And, and Jews may have certain convictions to live by as believers and Gentiles, others, but we have oneness in Jesus because this is not what defines us. What defines us is being in him. And that's the change from the Sinai covenant to the new covenant. Okay, I have a couple of comments on that one. Uh, first of all, uh, Jews might uh, decide to live one way uh, uh, other than Gentiles. That's not at all what the Torah talks about. It sure seems like he's getting into a bilateral ecclesiology here, and I don't believe he is. I think that he's saying that uh, you know, if a Jew feels like he wants to follow the Torah, he can, but it's not required of him. What are your thoughts on that, Rob? Yeah, I think, well, it's it's hard to know whether he's talking about Jewish believers today just wanting to keep some sort of... Uh, you know, continue to keep Passover and Sabbath, maybe in a in a, a not in an orthodox way. That he's saying, you know, that's okay. Uh, it, it's not entirely clear to me, so I don't feel comf- uh, comfortable commenting on that. Well, let let, let me actually. I want to I want to play this uh, clip again. I'll stop it because uh, I want to go one one at a time here. Obviously, we're not saying people have to live by Old Testament law today. We're saying that there is a new law in the Messiah. Okay, there's a new law in the Messiah. What's the yeah, new? That's, that's what's, problematic. What's the new law in the Messiah? I don't know. I've never seen that verse. <laughs> well, you know, and he brings up the that we're no no longer under the Sinai covenant, but under the new covenant. At what point? You know, what I have to I would have to ask Doctor Brown what his what his definition of the new covenant is. Do you think that you know this goes back to our our discussion? Uh, we talked about this many weeks ago. Uh, Rob and I did. We talked about what is the new covenant and is it time bound? Well, the, my question to Doctor Brown would be: Was Abraham part of the new covenant? Was he part of the new covenant? Did he was he saved by faith through his faith in the Messiah? And I would I would say was Moses and or exactly. Elijah. I mean they appear they're talking to Yeshua about, or King about David. Yeshua's coming suffering. Yeah. So so it doesn't make any sense that he keeps saying we're under the new law of the Messiah. What is the new law of the Messiah? It, 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 and and Doctor Brown doesn't seem to want to give us uh, any any answer to that any th- any more thoughts on that? I do agree when he says we our identity is in Yeshua. I absolutely agree, and our unity in Yeshua. I um, I am right next to standing next to Doctor Brown and affirming that. Yeah, but absolutely. what but what is that identity? God gave us the, the idea. You know, Torah is God's identity, and it's Yeshua's identity. The Torah is that's the identity. You know, and this is where this is where we go. Uh, this is where we split with with other uh, messianics. The idea that uh, you know the Torah is a Jewish identity. If the Torah is, and, and I'm, we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, next week, but uh, the idea that the Torah is a Jewish identity is totally nonsense. That's not true. That is not what it is. Torah is God's identity. It is God's culture. It is. Gods. It's not the Jew. It's not that the Jewish people have have this, and it's their identity. That's not it at all. And so, for Doctor Brown to say that we no longer have to keep the uh, that, that our our identity is in Messiah, and therefore we don't have to keep the 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 Sinai covenant. No, those things are 
combined. The we, our our identity is in Messiah first and foremost, but the Messiah's identity is keeping Torah. Agre- do you agree with that, Rob? Yeah, I don't think I I, I don't uh, go down the same path that those that say, "Oh, Jesus came and now you can invent your own religion, like you could do whatever you want and and call it." I don't think Doctor Brown would agree with that yeah. either, though. Um, so, in other words, but we, but we are dealing with, you know, when Paul goes to these synagogues, you know, these gen- and the Gentiles that heard the gospel from Paul were associated with the diaspora synagogue communities. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't. It's not, I, you know, it seems that the the pattern that's repeated in Acts is Paul will go to one synagogue and then he says, well, you know, it's going to go to the Gentiles then, but then he goes to the next synagogue and mm-hmm. goes to another mm-hmm. synagogue every time. The idea is that there were Jews and Gentiles at these synagogues, and he's preaching the message to everybody. Mm-hmm. And those G- G- synagogues who were already uh, had any sort of connection or periphery to the, the local synagogues had already adopted certain uh, practices in order to even maintain any sort of connection. I mean, just to be there on a Shabbat where Paul is preaching means that they understood the idea of Sabbath. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. and the fact that they... Uh, they probably weren't necessarily, you know, first time. There might have been some that were came for the first time, maybe, and saw Paul preach. But uh, it's likely that, uh, like, back to this quote from Acts 15, where he says, you know, from days of old, you know, Moses has been preached in these synagogues, in, in all these cities, um, that there were recurring visitors that were uh, of, the, of the nations, yeah. and that they were already adopting certain practices that, you know, coming on the Sabbath day is a pretty big deal. It means you're not working. It means you're not doing these other things, which means you would have had to make arrangements. And it means that, and it means that all of a sudden, from the outside, it looks like you have quote become Jewish, even if you haven't, uh, even if you haven't uh, converted, even if there isn't a conversion. Yeah, regardless process. of what the local synagogue authority labeled you as, from the outside view, it looks you're, like you're you're attaching yeah. yourself to Israel. And they're gone. Exactly. Hey, listen, we have uh, two more clips left. We have, uh, but but I'm going to save them. I'm going to save them for next week. We're going to begin our show next week with uh, these two clips from Dr. Brown. And then we're going to talk about what the Bible says. Why do Rob and I believe that, that uh, believe in a one-law theology? Well, we believe in it because of specific things that the Bible teaches. And so we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to... Uh, Get to some of your emails and the end of what Dr. Brown says. We're also going to talk for a few minutes about, uh, well, Dr. Brown's last comment is about First Fruits of Zion. He brings up First Fruits of Zion. We're going to talk about uh, the book that Boaz, Michael, and First Fruits of Zion have been pushing, which is Tent of David, and what this teaches about one law, theology, and uh, Gentiles in the Messianic communities. So... Uh, I hope that you join us for that, and uh, I hope that you've enjoyed our look at this. The only, uh, the last thing I want to say before we go, the only reason that I that we even did this whole thing uh, today with Dr. Brown, the whole reason I wanted to do this was because I wanted to show that it's not just Messianics who are against us on this, obviously, uh, but the Christian church is pu- and uh, Christian teachers are pushing against what is called one law theology, but the questions are starting to be asked no matter what. I can tell you that Dr. Brown, Rob Vanhoff, and myself all serve the same great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Mm-hmm.